Certainly one of the great tragedies in Bible study is to commit the grave error of failing to observe the context in which a, a passage is found. There are many hermeneutical principles, as they're called, or rules of interpretation by which we should abide if we're going to be fair with the scriptures. And there are certain questions we ask, who is the author of a passage, what is the setting, and the context and observing the context is of vital importance in terms of making sure that we do not misapply or misapprehend what the scriptures teach. We can understand the Bible, as we pointed out this morning. And indeed, we can understand what John writes in this, the epistle of certainties, as it is called, the epistle of love from the apostle of love. That is another designation because so much is written about love. There's so much written about knowledge, so much written about obedience, so much written about faith as well by John in this epistle. And in the passage we look at tonight, the first five verses of 1 John 5, it is vitally important as we look at verse 1 to understand and appreciate the context in which the statement is made, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, or as the American Standard translates it, begotten of God. We've mentioned before that the term in the original language in which the New Testament was written for birth and begettal is the same word. And the context needs to indicate whether begettal is under consideration by the divine, uh, the inspired writer, or, or birth. And more properly, as the American Standard renders this text, begotten, the Father is the one who begets. And since God is under consideration here, it may very well be that the term begotten, as the American Standard renders it, would be the more appropriate translation rather than born. But regardless, what John is talking about, the one about whom John is, is writing, is one who is a Christian. He has been begotten of God. That is, God is the begetter. And one is born of water and the Spirit, the new birth that brings one into the kingdom. And so, in this context in which John speaks of belief, it is not to say that Faith alone is the one that saves or is the thing that saves the alien sinner. That's to lift this passage out of the context in which it is found and to do it the greatest possible injustice. As tragically, very sincere people, and we do not doubt their sincerity, do with not only a passage such as this, but with so many other passages in Scripture. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That is a passage, the so-called golden text of the Bible, which is taken out of context time and time again to try to prove salvation by faith alone. But John, as he writes, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, is not writing to alien sinners in this context. He's writing to those who are Christians. And we also have to realize and remember that the chapter divisions were placed in the Bible by man. And so there's a continuation of John's writing from chapter 4 right on into chapter 5. 
And if you look at verse 21 of chapter 4, John writes, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And then he goes into this verse, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That is, he answers the question, Well, who is my brother? If I am admonished and enjoined, it's enjoined upon me to love my brother. If I love God, who is my brother? And the question is answered in this verse, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is my brother. But belief here, written to the Christian, is in the present tense. Belief in the present tense keeps on believing. The one who obviously is an obedient believer in Christ is the one who is begotten of God or who is the Christian. Belief, in other words, encompasses obedience, as it so often does throughout Scripture, as it does in that golden text of the Bible that we quoted a moment ago, John 3.16. Whoever believes in Him, that obviously encompasses every condition of salvation that is elsewhere mentioned in Scripture that is necessary to our becoming Christians. And it's tragic that so many times people do not observe the context, and the use, as we've talked about in the past, of faith as a synecdoche, that which stands for every other condition that is elsewhere required in Scripture. And so when John writes here, he's writing to those who are obedient believers. He's writing to those who are brothers in Christ, and he reminds those who are brothers in Christ that they must keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ to be identified as those who've been begotten or born of God. And then he goes on, and everyone who loves him, that is, loves the one who begets, the father, that is, everyone who loves him who begot, that's the father, obviously, also loves him who is begotten of him. And so here, obedient belief, as belief is used here, is also now tied inseparably to love. You can't be a believer in Christ without also loving God, obviously, but you cannot love God without loving the one who has been begotten of God. That's your brother or your sister. It's no wonder that John is called the apostle of love because he enjoins this love upon his readers here in passage after passage, in section after section of this great first epistle that we are studying. And so, in answer to the question that is raised by verse 21 of chapter 4, who is my brother? The answer is the one who keeps on believing, that is, obediently believing that Jesus is the Christ. That's the one who is truly a child of God. And beyond that, everyone who loves the Father, who begets, who makes possible your Christianity, who makes possible the new birth, everyone who loves him also must love all others who are begotten of him. We're family. Can you love your father without loving your sibling, in effect? Can you love the father who begot you and, and hate your sibling, also begotten by the father? It's an impossibility if you are going to continue to be a lover of God and an obedient follower of God. That's why this subject of love is so vitally important, so absolutely crucial 
to our understanding of what it means to live the Christian life and to manifest that love one for another. And so faith or belief, obedient belief, is tied to love. And it's further emphasized in verse 2 where John writes, By this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know? What is the test by which we can know that we love the children of God? Here it is, when we love God and keep His commandments. Because one of those commandments is that we love the children of God, as we've just seen from verse 1. You can't love the Father who begets without loving your siblings who have also been begotten of God. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments, one of which is to love our brothers and sisters. John 13, 34 and 35, the text we have looked at as we've studied this subject of love in this epistle at other times. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said to His disciples, that you love one another. The newness of the commandment is what? Love? No. As I have loved you, there's the newness of the commandment, as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And so John ties together faith, love, and obedience. You cannot separate the two. Now think about it. Verse 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. How can one interpret that to be faith only when now we're looking at verse 2 where John says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. How can you say that faith only is being enjoined upon us in chapter 5 verse 1, whoever believes, and that that's faith only when John immediately turns around and says, our love for the children of God is manifested by our love for God and the keeping of His commandments. And so it cannot possibly be faith alone in verse 1 that John is talking about. It has to be obedient faith because he reinforces that when he says, when we love God and keep His commandments. By this we know that we love the children of God. By this we know that we love God. And so the faith that demonstrates our love for God and for His children is the faith that obeys God and keeps His commandments. Therefore, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, cannot be a reference to faith alone. And then in verse 3, John writes, For this is the love of God. Again, reinforcing that we do what, John? That we keep His commandments. Remember in John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. The American Standard says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that really relates to the next statement that John makes. And his commandments are not burdensome. Let me ask you, how do you reconcile the statement of John that his commandments are not burdensome with the statement of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life 
and there are few who find it. Some have had difficulty reconciling John's statement here with Jesus' statement there. Straight is the gate, difficult is the way that leads to life. If it's difficult and straightened, that is not straight in the sense of a straight line, but difficult in that sense, how then can John accurately say that his commandments are not burdensome? Well, Jesus never said that the Christian life was a bed of roses, and John is not saying that the Christian life is a bed of roses. But what he is saying is that the keeping of his commandments if indeed our attitude is as it should be, if our love is in place as it should be and growing, then the keeping of His commandments is anything but burdensome. It's, it's a pleasure. It's a delight to have the privilege of obeying, to have the privilege of keeping His commandments. It is not something that burdens me. It is something that I willingly and lovingly do. Gets us back to John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And if you love him, his commandments cannot be burdensome that you are keeping. And if his commandments are burdensome, then it's a clear indication that your love has not achieved the level that the Lord wants it to achieve. Because Jesus has always held out as the supreme motivation for keeping his commandments, love. Not fear, not Beauty, but love. And when love motivates us supremely, then his commandments are not burdensome. It also reminds us, John's statement does, of another statement by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. In verse 28 beginning, where the greatest invitation ever extended is given by the Lord, an invitation that is still open and will be until time is no more. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. There's a burden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he adds in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, when we take upon us the yoke of Christ, we have we have a yoke with him by which and through which he is able to get us through the difficulties of this life, the challenges that will inevitably face every one of us who live in this world, if we live in this world very long. But in the yoke of Christ, those burdens and difficulties that face everyone are made lighter because he is our burden bearer. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you, First Peter 5 and verse 7. And so when you cast aside the cares of the world and you take on the yoke of Christ, you have someone who, despite the fact that the Christian life has its challenges, challenges and difficulties, can make those burdens light in comparison to those who have to face them without Christ as their helper, without Christ as the one upon whom they can cast all their cares because he keeps on and never stops caring for you. You cast your cares in the sense of anxiety upon him because he cares in a different sense, in a different word that's used in the latter part of that verse, meaning the compassionate love and care that he has for you. And so, yes, the commandments are not burdensome even though, even though the Christian life has its burdens. But the beauty is that in Christ, in Christ we have a burden bearer. We have one who makes those burdens lighter especially as we bear those burdens and keep his commandments motivated supremely 
by love. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And remember also a passage we looked at earlier in our study, 1 John 2 and verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. There's that word knowledge which is used in some form 32 times in this first epistle of John. That's why it's called the epistle of certainties and at times the epistle of love because love is used 26 times in the epistle. Hereby we know that we know him. We can know if we keep his commandments. Now couple that with 1 John 5, 3, the latter part of it, and his commandments are not burdensome. We can know him by keeping them, and by keeping them we're not overly burdened because we keep them motivated by love. And beyond that, verse 4 reminds us that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Why do you think John penned for whatever is born of God rather than for whoever is born of God? It seems to be because he's emphasizing the birth itself and the emphasis is on the birth itself and the power of that birth, the ability of that new birth to overcome the world, to overcome the world. Think about the time in which John wrote these words. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And then he adds, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. That's perfect tense. It has overcome the world. Our faith. A faith that manifested itself in obedience to the gospel to whom John writes this epistle. These Christians had overcome the world through their obedient faith. It was their obedient faith, their belief that led them to repent, confess Christ, and be baptized that gave them the victory over the world. As they came forth from the watery grave of baptism, having gone into that burial by faith, it is that faith that has overcome the world. I appreciate very much what the late Burton Kaufman wrote about this passage. He wrote, how daringly incredible must such a claim as this have appeared to unbelievers, in John's time he means, who might have been aware of it. He says, the world of that era was the domain of the Caesars. To all outward appearances, imperial Rome must have looked like the victor. There was not a force on earth except that of which John wrote, which could stand against Rome, all the nations of the known world of that day, being merely the slaves and vassals of the tyrant on the Tiber. Between that organized oppression and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, there could be no neutrality. Either Christ was Lord and would prove himself so to be, or the self-appointed, quote, gods, unquote, of the imperial purple would win the field. And think about the persecutions that arose during the days of the early Christians. And Brother Kaufman goes on to speak of those, part of which occurred under Galerius Augustus. And he says the terrible persecutions would soon begin 
under Nero, because I believe Brother Kaufman took the early date for the writing of 1 John, it seems. But he mentions it would last intermittently for nearly 250 years. That's the world in which John penned these words where he says, Faith has overcome the world, the world of Rome, that powerful empire. But he mentions that Eusebius tells us of the final outrage in terms of persecution that occurred in the reign of Galerius Augustus. This was between some 305 and 311 A.D. Listen to this. Christians were flogged until the flesh hung from their bones. Salt or vinegar was poured in their wounds. Their flesh was cut off bit by bit to feed waiting animals. They were eaten piecemeal by starved beasts. Their fingers were pierced with sharp reed under their nails. Their eyes were gouged out. They were suspended by a hand or foot. Some had molten lead poured down their throats. They were beheaded, beaten to death with clubs or crucified. Some were torn asunder by being tied to bent branches of trees. And he adds, this quotation is from Eusebius by Will Durant. And he says, who complained that this could not be verified by pagan sources. But then the question is asked, why should pagans have admitted such deeds? There can be no doubt whatever of the truth of these records. He goes on to say that Durant stated that the persecutions mentioned above lasted for eight years, involving the death of at least 1,500 people and the brutal abuse of many thousands more. But then he says, as the brutalities multiplied, the pagan population was stirred. Good citizens expressed themselves against the most ferocious oppression in Roman history. The people turned against the government. Many pagans risked death to hide or protect Christians, and then it happened. In Galerius, suffering from a mortal illness, convinced of failure, and implored by his wife to make his peace with the undefeated God of the Christians, promulgated an edict of toleration, recognizing Christianity as a lawful religion, and asked the prayers of the Christians in return for, quote, our most gentle clemency. Galerius, as he faced death, also recognized defeat that despite all of the atrocities that he had leveled against the Christians, he still could not overcome them. Durant summed up the terrible conflict that lasted nearly a quarter of a millennium with the words, quote, Caesar and Christ had met in the arena and Christ had won. History demonstrated the truth of what the Apostle John wrote in this verse. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. The Roman world and any world that arrays itself against the kingdom of God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We don't know what our world will look like in five years, ten years, twenty years. We don't know what may be faced by Christians in the days, years ahead in this country, in this world. But we do know this. Whatever it is, even if it is as horrific as these persecutions that we have just 
read about, John's words will still ring true. And faith will still be the victory that overcomes the world. Who is he who overcomes the world? John asked in the final verse we look at tonight. But he who believes, and that's present tense again, keeps on believing that Jesus is the Son of God. The word overcomes is also in that present tense, and so John is asking here, who is he that will keep on overcoming the world? Whatever that world is, whatever that world looks like, and however that world arrays itself against the kingdom of God, who is the one who will overcome that world? It is he who believes, that is, keeps on believing, obediently believing, and keeping the commandments of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. What about you tonight? Have you expressed your faith in some other way other than by mental agreement or mental assent to the fact that Jesus is the Christ? If you have not, you must, in order to be characterized as one who's been begotten of God, you must be born of water and the Spirit, that is, born of the waters of baptism according to the teaching of the Spirit in the Word of God which tells you to believe with all of your heart, repent, confess, and be baptized. And when you come forth from that watery grave, you will have come forth by a faith that has overcome the world. And by maintaining that faith throughout your life, you will continue to overcome the world, regardless of how this world changes and regardless of what this world does or attempts to do to the kingdom of God. If you're here tonight as one who has not continued to overcome the world because your faith has not continued obediently, you need to come home to your first love. We plead with you to do that. In repentance and confession of public sin that needs to be repented of publicly, that we may pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you supremely. As we stand to sing, will you come?